Well, good morning, everyone. All well today? Uh, well, sort of. Anyone, maybe you've been on your holidays already. I can see a few suntanned faces. Uh, our family were over in Fife um, <clears throat> a week before last it was, and the weather was amazing. It's been great to, to have some Scottish sunshine, but it does lull you into a wee bit of a false sense of security because the sky was blue, the, the sand was actually quite warm, and I thought, surely the sea will be a little bit warmer, and plunged right in and nearly froze to death. So yeah, but it's nice to be enjoying a bit of um, summer relaxation, isn't it? So during the, during the month of July, we've been looking at uh, this um, subject of worship, and part of the reason for that was when we've not been able to gather, the thing that people missed, they said, was corporate worship. That was the phrase that kept coming back again and again and again. And I think it's been important and helpful and useful to be able to unpack a wee bit, what do we all mean by that? Because there's probably something just a little bit different that each of us takes away from that. And, and that's why it's been great to look at different facets of what worship is. So Zach used a really helpful definition when he started proceedings off, and he said that worship is the people of God in the presence of God pouring out the praises of God. That's a great sort of way to encapsulate what it is. Worship unites us. Again, that's something that we've learned because we're all very different. We've all got different views and thoughts and opinions, but whenever we come to worship, there's a unity. There's a unity of purpose in what we're doing. We've heard it's a natural activity of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's almost that we can't help but worship whenever that's a reality. We heard too, it's a way for us to encounter God. There's something supernatural that occurs in a, in a place and a situation and a time like this. It's an opportunity for us to respond as well. We receive, we do encounter God, and then we have an opportunity to, to give something back. And all of it's motivated by a desire to see Jesus known. Last week we heard from May that our worship should be exuberant, enthusiastic, exciting. We shouldn't feel held back, whether it's in a context like this or, or anywhere we find ourselves. Who are we individually and how do we express that worship to God? We shouldn't be worried about what other people think. So today we're going to have a look at another facet of worship. And it's maybe one that doesn't immediately jump to mind. And that is seeing worship as battle. Worship as battle. And to help us understand more of that perspective, let's have a look at an episode involving God's chosen people of Israel in the Old Testament as we find it recorded in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. <clears throat> I'm going to read this whole passage, so it's, one, it's verses 1 to 24, and I know for me, um, when I'm thinking about reading something like this, I'm trying to picture myself in the scene. So maybe you want to do that. Try and think of yourself there, experiencing what's going on uh, as we read here. Second Chronicles 20. After this, the armies of the Moabites, the Ammonites, and some of the Maonites declared war on Jehoshaphat. Messengers came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army from Edom is marching against you beyond the Dead Sea. They're already at Hazazon Tamar. This was another name for Engedi. Jehoshaphat was terrified by this news and begged the Lord for guidance. 
He also ordered everyone in Judah to begin fasting. So people from all the towns of Judah came to Jerusalem to seek the Lord's help. Jehoshaphat stood before the community of Judah and Jerusalem in front of the new courtyard at the temple of the Lord, and he prayed. O Lord God of our ancestors, you alone are the God who's in heaven. You're the ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth. You're powerful and mighty. No one can stand against you. O our God, did you not drive out those who lived in this land when your people Israel arrived? And did you not give this land forever to the descendants of your friend Abraham? Your people settled here and built this temple to honor your name. And they said, whenever we faced Whenever we're faced with any calamity such as war, plague, or famine, we can come to stand in your presence before this temple where your name is honored. We can cry out to you to save us, and you will hear us and rescue us. And now I see what the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir are doing. You wouldn't let our ancestors invade those nations when Israel left Egypt, so they went around them and didn't destroy them. And now see how they reward us, for they've come to throw us out of your land, which you gave as an inheritance. Oh, our God, won't you stop them? We're powerless against this mighty army that's about to attack us. We do not know what to do, but we're looking to you for your help. As all the men of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, wives and children, the Spirit of the Lord came upon one of the men standing there. His name was Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite who is a descendant of Asaph. He said, listen, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem, listen, King Jehoshaphat, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, march out against them, You'll find them coming up through the ascent of Ziz at the end of the valley that opens into the wilderness of Jeruel. But you'll not even need to fight. Take your positions, then stand still and watch the Lord's victory. He is with you, O people of Judah and Jerusalem. Don't be afraid or discouraged. Go out against them tomorrow, for the Lord is with you. Then King Jehoshaphat bowed low with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem did the same worshiping the Lord. Then the Levites from the clans of Kohath and Korah stood to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud shout. Early the next morning, the army of Judah went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. On the way, Jehoshaphat stopped and said, listen to me, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be able to stand firm. Believe in his prophets, and you will succeed. After consulting with the people, the king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army, singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. This is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. At the very moment they began to sing and give praise, the Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting among themselves. The armies of Moab and Ammon turned against their allies from Mount Seir and killed every one of them. After that, they destroyed the army of Seir. They began attacking each other, and soon the army of Judah arrived at the lookout point in the wilderness, and all they saw were dead bodies lying on the ground as far as they could see. Not a single one of them had escaped. 
That's some story, isn't it? Give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. Not your standard battle cry. And yet that's, that's, what, they, that's what they sang. It's as surprising and unexpected as it is deeply powerful and brimming with incredible significance. And it's quite a contrast as to how the story began. King Jehoshaphat was terrified. You can just picture him literally shaking with terror. The news of an imminent invasion had been brought to him. So how did it go from that to giving thanks to the Lord because his faithful love endures forever? What can we learn from the, the series of events that, that unfolds? I think to begin with, the first thing is there was an acknowledgement of the problem. That might seem very obvious, and yet it was an absolutely vital step, an absolutely vital first step, so that the whole chain of subsequent events could actually happen. There were enemies on the move, there was a battle that was imminent, that was the message that had been brought, there was a clear and present danger. All this was communicated to the king, and he believed it. He chose to believe it. He didn't ignore it. He could quite easily have ignored it. He could have gone for a, a second opinion. But he didn't. He didn't procrastinate. He fully accepted the situation as it was. And he immediately sought then to take appropriate action to address the situation. Secondly, we see the importance of community. Did, did you notice that? Did you notice how many individuals were mentioned? How many different groups of people but actually the overriding sense was that this was a problem for the community. Everyone was involved. Everyone was affected. Everyone was impacted. The role of the individual found its context in the larger community of God's chosen people. It wasn't individual first. It was community first. Jehoshaphat ordered everyone in Judah to begin fasting. Everyone. So the people from all the towns of Judah and Jerusalem came to seek the Lord's help. Jehoshaphat stood before the community of Judah and Jerusalem and prayed. As all the men of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children, the Spirit of the Lord came upon one of the men. Now you get the message. They were all in this thing together. The importance of community was clear. And finally, it was clear that having a proper perspective was really important. In fact, it was, was critical. And that perspective was both in terms of time and circumstance. So for the people, the time was in the moment. The time was there, right there and then. And yet Jehoshaphat, when he prayed, again, did you notice, he wisely set their moment, that situation that they were facing, he set it in the much wider context of the history of God's people. So he gave the perspective of God's story. He said it in the correct perspective. He put the people in the context of God's wider story. Here's what he prayed. O Lord, God of our ancestors, you alone are the God who's in heaven. You're the ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth. You're powerful and mighty. No one can stand against you. O oh, our God, did you not drive out those who lived in this land when your people Israel arrived? And did you not give this land forever to the descendants of your friend Abraham? So you see the difference that a perspective can have. 
as well as being in the present as far as time was concerned, the the real-time circumstance was terrifyingly obvious, wasn't it, for all to see? Advancing armies intent on battle. And yet again, we see how a proper perspective changed that reaction from one of abject terror to to one of uh, worship. Jehoshaphat begged the Lord for guidance and he ordered everyone else to do the same. And immediately the emphasis was taken away from the individual and probably away from the problem to a degree and the focus went to God. Again, I wonder if you pictured that scene as you were were listening to me reading it. Can you picture that scene? There would have been thousands, thousands of people all there in Jerusalem, literally thousands, standing there waiting, expecting, trusting. We don't know what to do, but we're looking to you for help. That was the very honest and vulnerable prayer. We don't know what to do, but we're looking to you for help. Standing, waiting, expecting, trusting. And then God answered by speaking through this chap called Jehaziel. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army for the battle isn't yours. The battle is God's. Again, picture the scene. It's no wonder worship was the instantaneous response whenever that was the message that God gave to his people. Don't worry. Don't be discouraged. The immediate circumstances hadn't changed at all, but the perspective of the people certainly had. Moving away from self, and moving towards God. So the problem of the impending battle was acknowledged. The importance of the collective community was clear, and the the shifting of the perspective from self, from a human perspective to God's perspective, was intentionally carried out. And all this demonstrated a willing submission to God. A willing submission to God, to his rule to his way. And that led to a subsequent obedience because although the people submitted to God's will, he still gave instruction as to what was going to happen next. And that submission and that obedience showed that the people were completely dependent on God. There wasn't a plan B. There was nothing else that they were going to do. They took God at his word. They obeyed the steps, which probably seemed slightly odd to them, but they obeyed them so they were completely dependent on God. And that's why we come to that stage of, of the battle cry, which, as I say, is surprising to say the least. Give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. That was, that was all that could come out of them because of their dependence on God, because of their trust in him for their situation. Give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. And as we read, the battle was miraculously won. And as with all of the Old Testament, this story ultimately points us forward through time to Jesus. From our vantage point, thousands of years have been added to that continuum of human history. 
And we can see and continue to say, with those people back then, give thanks to the Lord, his faithful love endures forever. And we see now how God's faithful love endured, how it was worked out, because God loved the world so much that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. Those people didn't see that. They had some sort of a notion. They had a, an understanding that God was going to save them, that somebody was going to come, that, that a Messiah was going to appear. But it was, it was in the future. It was dark. They couldn't see it clearly. Unlike us, we can see the reality of God's faithful love enduring forever. And the events that we read about this morning and that isolated victory in battle, they were a foreshadowing of Jesus' submission. Jesus submitted fully to his Father when he was here on earth. And Jesus obeyed fully to embrace death on a cross for the sin of everyone, all of mankind. And Jesus' resurrection marked that ultimate victory in the battle for all of humanity. We have a privilege of that vantage point to see how God's love endures forever. And because of that, we can echo those words from Romans 8 where we read, and I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or on the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that's revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. With all that in mind, how, how do we connect this to everyday life whenever we go down the steps and go out there and, and go into the week? I wonder whether an answer to that is it's actually the same starting point as we saw in that story with Jehoshaphat and the people of Israel. Continually acknowledging that actually there is a problem. Realizing that each day we're actively involved in a battle. Because we're not, we're not going to make use of worship in battle if we don't actually acknowledge that there is a battle, so we're not. So how, how do we do that? For us, at present, we are fortunate in that our battle isn't physical. But that can fool us into a bit of complacency, can't it? There's wise words in Ephesians 6 where we read, we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against the evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. That that's our reality. That's what happens whenever we walk out of here. That's what happens whenever we're walking into our work situations. Whatever that might be, that's the reality. There's a chap called John Mark Comer has written a great book called Live No Lies, which I'd recommend to you. And he articulates well the unseen strategy of the devil. Here's what he said. The devil's strategy is deceitful ideas, that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. Deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. 
This daily battle for us, it is real, and it is specific. It's not the same things that affect all of us. It's different. And whether we realize it or not, or not, that's what's going on. And the primary weapon that the devil uses is lies. Lies about God. Lies about other people. Lies about ourselves. And over time, those lies are subtle and yet completely devastating. And we only need to look at our Western society today to see the impact of some of those lies over the last, over the last 50 years. Self has become the new God. Freedom is now seen as permission to do exactly what you want, when you want, with no consequence. Individual feeling is the new morality. And the underlying motivators in our culture, when we step back and look at our security and entertainment, self-preservation and self-gratification, But far from establishing the the utopia that was heralded when all of this started to come about, this cultural shift has instead resulted in, in isolation and confusion. So our question must be, where are we susceptible to those lies? Because they are impacting us. And unless we're proactive in asking that question, we're open to those deceitful ideas playing to our disordered desires that are normalized in our sinful society. If we don't acknowledge there's a battle, we're not going to use worship in that context. Do we believe the lie that we're useless, past our best, nothing really much to give? Or the equally destructive lie that actually we're not too bad, at least we're not like them over there. Those are some of the prevailing lies that are around. Where where do we sit in our polarized society and our attitudes towards people with differing views from us? Do we have more affinity with those with a similar view on Scottish independence, let's say, than we do with our fellow, fellow Jesus followers? Something wrong if that's the case. How do we see Jesus' command to love our neighbors outworked with those who view life very differently to us? Where are those those subtle lies that are normalized in our society? Where, Where are they getting us? It's so important to acknowledge that there's a problem, and starting with us. And whilst acknowledging that problem is always painful, it really serves to waken us up, and we don't kind of sleepwalk around thinking everything's completely fine. Just as with Jehoshaphat and and the people, it serves to open our eyes to the crucial importance of this. Of community, of coming together like this for an experience like we're having today. And also in those smaller communities that we meet in. Where's a place where we can unpack and process these lies? Where Where can we be open and vulnerable and admit, this is what's impacting me, can you help me? That's where we find support. That's where we find challenge. That's where we find love. We are part of a community of faith. We are part of the body of Christ. And our perspective is that we're part of God's big story. It's not just about here and now and us. Challenging and difficult and and, and broken as it is when we look around, we're part of something 
bigger. We have a heavenly father who loves us. We have a savior who intercedes for us. And we have each other to forge relationships with, to love, to support, to challenge, to do this life with. We're not designed to do it on our own at all. Our identity is first and foremost as children of the living God. And as such, we're a minority too. I don't know if that's not really as hit home fully. We are a minority. In my lifetime, when I went to school, to secondary school, the scripture union was the biggest club. And you're actually a bit weird if you didn't go. And how that has changed. And I, I, I'm sure that's the impact of some of these subtle lies that have been going on and been perpetrated and, and carried on over these last 50 years or so. We are a minority. We are living in exile. We will face opposition. But because of that perspective of us in God's story, because we know that the ultimate victory is there, because it's he's in control and not us, despite the present circumstance, all is not lost. Another quote from, from John Mark Comer in that book. He says, in such an exilic moment as now, the church as a counter-anti-culture has the potential to not only survive, but also flourish as a creative minority loving the host culture from the margins. That's the perspective to have, isn't it? Despite everything we see that is wrong, it doesn't mean that we withdraw it doesn't mean that we pull away and have nothing to do with culture. Equally, it doesn't mean that we just are completely bought into it and, and compromise everything. But it does mean that we can love the host culture from the margins. There's things that we can do. Society is broken. People so desperately need to know from us about the love of Jesus. People need to know from us about the amazing grace of Father God. They need to know it's available to anyone and everyone who chooses. And those who have accepted that gift can continue with us as we've accepted that gift and join with the multitudes through the angels in that worshipful battle cry which says, give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. For a story of your people that occurred thousands of years ago, contained in your holy word, and brought alive in our context and our situation. Thank you for teaching us from it. Thank you that your love endures forever. Thank you that we're testimony to that fact. I pray you would help us continue to open our eyes to what is going on around about us, to the battle that we're involved in, in the knowledge that you have ultimate victory, in the knowledge too that you have called us to make a difference where we are, to recognize where you want to hone us, to recognize where we're falling short, to recognize where we're embracing some of these lies and to do something about it by your spirit, but also to communicate through how we live and how we speak, that that doesn't have to be the way. That you love all people. That Jesus died for all people. And that his grace is available to all. 
And we thank you that your faithful love endures forever. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.